Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ support. For the month of April, St. Evans will be donating to Welcome to Chinatown, a grassroots initiative that is supporting and amplifying community voices to preserve one of New York City's most vibrant neighborhoods. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women-of-color-run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where saint evens. Shop Vintage 
do good, and wear St. Evans. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has had to deal with sales section pee puddles way too often. By the way, sales section pee puddle, it's kind of a tongue twister. That was a hard one to get out. Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda. Welcome to episode 69. And hey, let's all be adults here and not make any teenage boy jokes about that, okay? This is a very serious podcast. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Alex of St. Evans. You know her. She's been here before. We're going to be talking about employee discounts, how businesses actually rely on the employees to be customers in order to meet sales goals. And while we're going to talk about how that discount isn't really that great of a deal, don't worry, I'll do the math for you. We'll also be talking about just how generally difficult retail work is and we'll be putting a little spotlight on some of the egregious waste that goes on within most retail stores. And before that, I'll be breaking down another key pillar of capitalism, competition. And believe it or not, competition is actually a great segue into employee discount. I promise it's all going to make sense when we get there. And you'll be like, whoa, how did that happen? Guys, I don't know how it happened. You know I just wing it over here. Anyway, (laughs) I also want to remind you about next month's theme, labor. We'll be talking about workers' rights, unions, the fight to raise the minimum wage. And I want to hear from all of you about your experiences in your jobs, the good, the bad. I want to talk to you about the things that bug you about your job or jobs you've had in the past, what you think could have been better, how your jobs make you feel. Let's talk about performance reviews, that tired old concept of paying your dues, what it's like to be a manager. Um, I would love to talk to someone who works in HR. I have so many questions about that. So please call the Clothes Horse Hotline 
You can also send me a recorded voice memo using your phone or your computer, or we can have a short conversation. So just reach out and we'll figure it out. And all the details for reaching out to me, including the hotline number, are in the show notes. You can also, if you prefer, if you're the strong, silent type who just likes to write things down, you could write something for World. So think about that too. What else is going on around here? Well, this Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern, I'll be doing an extra special Instagram Live with Sammy of Dylan Page. We'll be talking about what fast fashion is, my experience working in it, etc. I'm sure we'll be taking questions too. So please come and check it out. It's going to be really fun. I'm excited. It's kind of like being on a talk show, right? (laughs) Also, I've been making IGTV videos. Those are like the Instagram version of YouTube, and they break down some of the stuff we discuss here on the podcast. I'm doing that so that I can reach people who say they aren't, quote, podcast people. But my question is, what do they listen to when they clean their kitchen? Like, please advise. I'm so confused. How does that work? I can't imagine doing housework without a podcast. But anyway, please check out the videos if you have a suggestion for one. I'm really trying to hit the greatest hits of clothes horse, like, you know, things that I can explain in less than five minutes, theoretically. So if there's something you've learned from the podcast that you think lots of other people, those non-podcast people would enjoy, just let me know. I, you know, I'm going to run out of ideas. You know I need ideas from you. I'm planning on trying to do about one of these per week. So there's a lot of work to do. I have to tell you, it's a totally different process from podcasting, so I'm still super uncomfortable with it. But, you know, I used to find making the podcast so stressful and overwhelming, and now I'm like an editing and recording master. So I'm sure I'll get there with videos. And I would also just like to give a special shout out to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for making the most incredible old school public access style intro outro videos for all of my video content. It's so rad. And I feel like it sucks you in. You're like, ooh, what's this? So, wow, thank you, Dustin. I'm so lucky to have a partner who supports my work so much. If you're interested in supporting my work on Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. And if that's not your thing, because I feel like Patreon, that's like a big commitment, right? You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Thank you to all of you who already support me, whether it's with money or by recommending the podcast to others, sharing our content on our Instagram, or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's all so important to me. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. All right. Well, let's get into some capitalism talk. <laughs> Today, I'm going to break down another pillar of capitalism, and that is competition. Now, I am the least competitive person out there. In fact, when I feel like someone wants to compete with me, like in school for better grades or, I don't know, to have better clothes or nicer hair or whatever people compete over, I instantly sort of shut down and just like, I think probably intentionally fail. <laughs> anyway, I don't, I don't know about any of you, but you know. If you go bowling with me and you start being competitive, I'm definitely going to lose. So maybe I'm just giving away all the secrets to winning. I have no idea. But anyway, when it comes to capitalism, competition is so important. Seriously, when you step back, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, competition is 
an integral part of capitalism because capitalism drives businesses to work at maximum efficiency, to offer their products at the best prices, and to offer the best quality. Why? Because they don't want to be beaten out by the businesses out there competing with them to sell you the same thing. So let's do an example here. Let's say you run a company that makes cat toys. Well, you're going to want to be keeping an eye on other cat toy companies out there, your competitors. We call this the competitive landscape. So you, you're going to be looking out there on the landscape. I mean, you're going to be watching this regularly. And you're going to you're going to want to ensure that one of your competitors isn't raising or lowering prices in a way that doesn't align with your pricing because you don't want to be too much cheaper or too much more expensive than your competition. If you're too cheap, people will doubt the quality of your product. And if you're too expensive, you'll lose customers to the less expensive cat toy brand. When we look at competition under the lens of fast fashion, we, we can kind of go back to the last episode when we talked about how all of the retailers competed on price for a really, really long time. They were all trying to underprice one another. What happened is they hit kind of a bottom there where they couldn't go cheaper, right? So then they had to start competing by delivering the trends first. Strangely, we haven't gotten to a place where they're all trying to compete uh, regarding quality, but maybe, hey, maybe that's what's going to happen in 2022. Anyway, back to your cat toy company. What are you going to name it? I, you know, I want to hear. <laughs> I can't think of any clever cat puns right now, so please please, you can make up the, your own name for your cat toy company. You're also going to want to have the best quality cat toys out there, you know, for the price, because cat parents are less likely to buy a toy that falls apart in a few days. So you might get a customer once who buys a cat toy from you, but then it immediately falls apart. They're not going to come back, especially if someone out there is making a cat toy that lasts a lot longer. Now, if all the cat toy companies are making these low quality cat toys that fall apart after a couple days, well, then I guess your cat toys can be crappy too and you'll still keep up with everyone else. But if you improved your quality, you might beat them all out. Maybe that's what's gonna happen with fast fashion. Someone's gonna be like, hey, wait, I see that we're all com not competing when it comes to quality. What if one of us does? I don't know. One can hope, right? But back at Cat Toy Enterprises, wow, that is a bad cat toy company name. <laughs> anyway, you also want to make sure that you're running your business as efficiently as possible, especially as efficiently as the other cat toy businesses out there. So that means running with the exact right amount of employees, having the most streamlined logistics like your warehouse, your supply chain, your shipping. You know, you don't want other cat toy companies to be getting new product out there faster than you. And you don't want to run out of inventory so the other cat toy companies can kind of swoop in and take your sales, right? And if one of your competitors is more efficient than you, there's a chance that they're going to make more profit than you. And then they can begin to expand their hold on that massive cat toy market, basically stealing away customers from you. Like maybe they'll be able to make enough money to have like a Super Bowl ad or a billboard. You want to stay in line with your competitors as much as possible or you're going to lose them. Competition is at the heart of capitalism. It fuels innovation, fair pricing, 
productivity. Well, in its purest form, it does. But we know that ideas like capitalism and socialism assume in their lofty design that humans are a lot more perfect than they really are. So these big ideas, they totally go awry. They get all muddled up. I mean, we just talked about fast fashion, right? When humans and their numerous flaws get involved. (laughs) And that's a great transition into talking about monopolies because monopolies happen when competition goes awry. I'm not talking about the game here, but I promise that the ultimate goal of the game is, well, a monopoly. Very good name for that game. Very accurate. A monopoly from a business perspective is a company that has little to no competition in its field. So in the game of monopoly, the goal is to own all of the property on the board by driving each of your competitors to bankruptcy, right? In the end, if you win monopoly, which I personally have never finished a game of monopoly because you're like three hours into it, you're totally over it. And no one's close to winning. It's the worst, right? If you do win, if you see it through, it's days later, you're dehydrated, you're starving, your feet have fallen asleep, but you are the victor of Monopoly. You have a monopoly on real estate, meaning you control all the real estate on that board. And theoretically, then you also have all the money. In real life, for the most part, monopolies are bad for customers. Notice that I said for the most part, and we'll, we'll get to that. If you don't have any competition, you can name the price for what you sell. And you don't even have to worry about what you're selling being high quality. You can sell people whatever, and they have no choice but to buy it. Sometimes, though, monopolies are slightly okay for consumers. Like in the colonial era of the United States, Large monopolies handled all of the infrastructure for the burgeoning colonies. Like they just needed someone to come in there and build the infrastructure, manage all the trade of, you know, imports and exports and whatnot. Someone had to do it and it was just easier to let one company control an entire industry like construction, importing foods, fabrics, all of those things. It made sense at the time, but many of those monopolies held on to their contracts well past the Revolutionary War. And by the late 1800s, these monopolies were out of control. They were fixing prices at a point that was literally fleecing Americans. The service and quality was not good, and it didn't matter because you had no other options. Companies were also coming together to form what is called trusts in order to dictate prices together. Like maybe all the companies in the U.S. who sold coal would agree that they would sell coal for the same price. And so competition no longer existed. While that might seem like an adorable, cute BFF situation, it's actually really bad for consumers when when businesses come together like that because then things are really expensive and probably low quality. Well, in came the Sherman Antitrust Act. It banned trusts and monopolies and anything that kind of felt like either one of those, especially if they placed what they called unreasonable restrictions on interstate and international trade. And this is the kind of thing that people would go to court to fight what unreasonable meant for decades. They still are fighting in court over what unreasonable means when we talk about 
trusts and monopolies. The Sherman Antitrust Act basically acted like a massive hammer for the United States government. Like, just imagine this huge hammer. It's coming down on these big monopolies. They're kind of like peanut brittle. You hit it, and it smashes into tons of smaller pieces of peanut brittle, aka companies. And that's what happens. They broke up all of these companies. Antitrust and anti-monopoly policy allows competition to thrive. It keeps the heart of capitalism beating in its purest sense. Believe it or not, there are opponents of this idea that are like the most super diehard capitalists. These are the people who don't want any government involvement in business, right? They say we should trust these companies if we allowed them to do what they want, even if they form trust and monopolies, they would give customers what they want ultimately, which, well, I think that gives business leaders too much credit. That's like way too much pie in the sky thinking because we see time and time again when companies become too large, they absorb their competitors and the consumer suffers. Let's talk about a monopoly that was sort of good. John D. Rockefeller, the founder and chairman of Standard Oil and his partners, they took advantage of both the rarity of oil, it was an emerging trend, believe it or not, and they also were able to make a lot of revenue off of its rarity, you know, supply and demand right there. It allowed them to basically print their own money and set up a monopoly without the help of the banks because they could name the prices. They were just stacking and stacking and stacking money. Now, it's a known fact that Rockefeller and his team at Standard Oil were up to all kinds of super nefarious stuff. I read an article that said their behavior would have, quote, made Enron blush. So they were sketchy, but they did some good stuff with their monopoly. I, I know it's surprising, but back when there were a lot of oil companies before Standard Oil just ate them all up, right? Companies were... They were competing, and they were competing to be the cheapest and the most efficient, right? Because that's what competition is. So they would pump waste products from oil processing into rivers or just dump it straight out onto the ground rather than going through the cost of researching proper disposal and carrying it out. Pretty wild, right? They also would cut costs by using these shoddy pipelines to transport the oil that were very prone to leakage. By the time Standard Oil controlled 90% of oil production and distribution in the U.S., they had also built a massive, stable, reliable pipeline network, which the country needed. And they even figured out how to make a profit off of selling their waste to others who used it to make other products. The U.S. government was grateful for that, right? But they did eventually break up the Standard Oil monopoly in 1911. But it had sort of set the tone for a specific sort of industry that could be allowed to function as a monopoly, at least for a while. These larger public services and utilities. I mean, probably where you live, the gas company is a monopoly, most likely so is the electric company. You kind of just have one option, right? Another much larger example that I have of a monopoly that was allowed to exist until it kind of served its purpose, this one is going to require traveling back in time, deep into the recesses of your memories, 
to the era of landlines. Yes, I'm talking about telephones. And AT&T was a monopoly until the 80s as it built the entire telephone line infrastructure of the United States. Like it was allowed to exist for all that time strictly because it was the one, you know, laying the lines, putting up the telephone poles, you know, just creating the entire structure that we still use for landlines. I know, barely any of us have them, but you know, that that infrastructure is still there and functional. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan broke up AT&T into what they called the baby bells. And since that time, you know, baby bells, that makes me think of those little cheeses, but that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> but a baby bell is delicious. <laughs> Anyway, since that time, many of these so-called baby bells, which were just smaller telephone companies, often regional, that had once been part of AT&T, they actually began to merge and increase in size to better service a wider area because it's important to note that at the time, the breaking up of AT&T was actually bad for customers. It caused a massive decline in service quality and prices went up considerably. Over time, that corrected itself, but I guess now it doesn't even matter because we all have cell phones. However, there have been times where it had seemed as if there were too few cell phone companies as well and prices were really high. There are a lot more options out there for you now for a provider, but in the early days, of cell phones, it was like Verizon, AT&T, maybe Sprint, and stuff was expensive, like way more expensive than it is now for what you got. And that's a great segue into the next thing I'm gonna say here. Monopolies tend to arise when new products or services become dominant within society. So oil, telephone service, cell phone service, internet providers, computer software, and now social media. Microsoft is a good example of a company that has faced legal action for accusations of being a monopoly. Basically, for a long time, Microsoft was controlling the software market by forcing Windows to be the operating system on all PCs. That would dictate the hardware and other software that could be used with those PCs because they had to work with Windows. And they even bought competitors like Netscape, that was an old browser option for browsing the internet, and they destroyed Netscape so Microsoft Explorer could take over. And I've read some interesting stuff about how Netscape was poised to be like the Google of its time until Microsoft bought them out and absorbed them. Over time, Microsoft has been losing its footing as more and more open source software is created. More and more people use Google products. Uh, more, there are more operating systems out there. I mean, hell, Apple has a pretty massive market, right? But trust me, Microsoft is still up to some shady stuff. It comes up all the time. I just think people don't talk about it as much because... We spend so much time talking about Facebook. And Facebook is one that the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, is looking to break up for so many good reasons. The top five most used social media platforms worldwide as of January 2021, they're not going to surprise you. They're Facebook, YouTube, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and Instagram. And Facebook owns four out of those five. So they don't own YouTube, but I bet they've tried. 
That is way too much control over our data and social media and so many intimate details of our lives. And remember, when we talk about social media, which is free for us to use, we, the people using it and our data and our likes and dislikes, we are the product there. That's where they make their money, not selling us stuff, selling us. The FTC has called for a breakup of Facebook through the divestiture of WhatsApp and Instagram, meaning selling them, spinning them off into their own companies, selling them off. There's no telling if that will happen. This fight has been going on for a while. And just when I think it might, then everybody forgets about it. So we'll see. But we know now, after everything I've talked about, that competition is good, right? The monopolies kind of prove that. But sometimes the competition is just so unfair. The competitive landscape is just so tilted to one side that competition kills the smaller business. And we're talking the rise of massive retailers like Amazon and Walmart. Through the 90s and the aughts, when Amazon was just a bookstore, everyone was concerned about how Walmart was literally destroying the so-called Main Street mom-and-pop retailers across the country. It was also destroying the medium and large size retailers like Venture, Ames, Hills, and Kmart. How was it doing that? Well, by always selling stuff for the lowest price, no matter how low anyone else was selling it. So they weren't competing in terms of quality, but definitely in terms of price. Walmart is always going to get the cheapest cost on anything it sells because it's ordering literally millions of units and it has such control, such leverage over its supply chain that they can dictate the cost that they want. If you lose Walmart as a customer, your factory is certainly going out of business. And time and time again, manufacturers realized this. So they would just bend to Walmart's cost demand, whether it was for TVs or a pair of underwear, you know, food, which we're going to get into, no matter what, you had to give Walmart the price that they demanded because losing their business would mean losing your business. And no other retailer out there could keep up with these low, low prices. Walmart also had a massive logistics infrastructure and elaborate computerized inventory system, which I know these both sound so laughable in the Amazon era, but like for the 90s, this was so sophisticated. It was something that people in the industry would write about all the time. And yes, I am the nerdy kid who would sit in the library during lunchtime and read like the Wall Street Journal. I don't know why. I think I liked the the illustrations. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> this impressive technological infrastructure ensured that stores were always fully stocked, offering an almost infinite selection of products to the customers at any given time. And like I said, it would somehow be the cheapest price. I remember when a Walmart opened near my small town when I was in junior high. Everybody was excited. It was seriously the biggest thing that had happened in a long time there. And within a few years... All the other department stores, like the more discount ones, all the hardware stores and all the small pharmacies, they all closed. Walmart's where you went to get your food. Walmart's where you got your prescriptions, your clothes, your gardening implements, tools, you name it. Where else were you going to go, right? 
Walmart might offer the lowest prices, but it's not good for the towns where it opens stores. A study published in 2008 in the Journal of Urban Economics examined about 3,000 Walmart store openings nationally and found that each store caused a net decline of about 150 jobs as the competing retailers in that area either downsized or closed, and it lowered total wages paid to retail workers in that town. Experts believe that these shifts may explain the findings of another study published in the Social Science Quarterly in 2006, which cut straight to the bottom line. Neighborhoods where Walmart opens up end up with higher poverty rates and more food stamp usage than places where the retailer does not expand. And of course, this was 12, 13, 15 years ago when Walmart was like the biggest, most evil company out there. Remember, Amazon was still mostly selling books. And I don't think people knew this then, but it's definitely a lot more common knowledge now, at least if you hang out on Reddit as much as I do. In new hire orientation, new hires in a Walmart store are literally given paperwork to apply for food stamps and other benefits. Walmart is very aware that it is not paying a living wage. And so when Walmart moves into your town and all the other businesses close and Walmart's only your only job option, you're going to take it, but you're going to need food stamps to get by. And that is, I, I can't even think of a word for it. It's just not good, right? Walmart also controls 56% of the grocery market in the United States, meaning more than half of the groceries bought in the United States are bought from Walmart. That has nearly doubled since 2013, and that's no coincidence because Walmart felt, okay, well, we've kind of opened as many stores as we can open. We've kind of owned all these other categories, you know, like clothing and home goods and whatnot. Let's get into the grocery business. And so they remodeled stores. They expanded stores. Basically, they put a grocery store within a Walmart. So suddenly you could go to one place and get everything you needed. Once again, 56% of all the groceries bought in the U.S. are bought at Walmart. And previous to Walmart, the most anyone had ever controlled the grocery industry was back in the 1940s. It was A&P, and they were broken up by an antitrust case brought by the government. And at that point, A&P, before that case, was only controlling 12% of the grocery market. This is, this is bad. This can, does, and will have a massive impact on the food we buy and eat, even if you don't shop at Walmart and you buy your groceries somewhere else. Because Walmart's buying power allows it to dictate the foods that are grown, the foods that are manufactured, the packaging they come in, and even the prices they sell for. I'll tell you this. Walmart is nervous about Amazon. It is something you read about constantly in business media. Amazon has mastered shipping stuff. It has an infinite amount of inventory, even more than Walmart. It's never out of stock. And Amazon sells stuff from all over the world for the cheapest prices, like even Walmart can't keep up. 
Amazon has tried to get into the grocery game because they definitely see Walmart as their competitor, right? They bought Whole Foods. But, I mean, let's all be honest here. A store that people like to call Whole Paycheck, not me, I hate that. I hate when people say that. It's not funny. Anyway, a store called Whole Paycheck is never going to control more than half of the grocery market. Like, Walmart is offering cheap food, a massive selection. I'm going to tell you, when you live in a rural area, sometimes Walmart is your only grocery option. I remember once being at a restaurant. It was the only restaurant in town in a small town out off the Salton Sea in California, like way out there. And it was someone's birthday, like a customer. This is how small the town was. And so the owner of the restaurant had bought a birthday cake for this customer and we all sang happy birthday all of us in the restaurant and we all had a piece of cake and I was talking to the waitress I said wow this cake is so good where did you get it and she's like oh Walmart and I was like whoa really and she's like yeah it's a hundred miles away but it's the closest place to get a cake I mean you might sneer turn up your nose at shopping at Walmart but the reality is Walmart is cornering that rural market for grocery shopping and Go to a Walmart and you'll be really surprised by how much organic food they have, all of the like like health food trends. You put that all in quotes because we know that most of them are silly. Um, they have a wild grocery assortment because they can get what they want and they want to convert people who normally would not be caught dead in a Walmart to shopping at Walmart. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Amazon and Walmart. It's like it's like watching Godzilla fight a giant squid, you know? You worry about all the human casualties, but you just can't look away, <laughs> you know? Okay, abrupt transition coming. You ready? As most of you regular listeners know, I've been estranged from my mother now for more than a year. But there are things about the way I grew up my mother's approach to life, these kinds of things that I still find myself living and believing. And I'm still trying to sort of like unravel that from my own personal fiber. Used a textile metaphor there for you. One thing that you were never allowed to say in our house growing up was that something was unfair. My mom's response was always like, yeah, life is very unfair. It will always be unfair. There's nothing you can do about it. So get used to it. Basically to her, the mere idea of saying that something un was unfair, like saying it out loud, was just indicative of the lack of general understanding about life and she had no tolerance for it. My mom was always a big fan of the brutal truth bombs, no matter how old I was or how actually maybe not that true they were. I asked her in third grade, do you think I could ever be president? And she laughed bitterly and said, no, definitely not. In kindergarten, she pulled me aside and said, there's no such thing as Santa. You're too smart for that kind of stupidity. But please play along for your dumb cousins and your dumb brother. Yes, that really happened. I'm pretty sure I still believed in Santa at that point. And I remember all through the holidays that year, having to fake enthusiasm about Santa-related things around my cousins and my brother and wondering if I was doing a good enough job, like I had anxiety about it. In second grade, she sat me down to just tell me, this was just like one day after school, I'd just come home. She just wanted to talk to me. 
She told me that, in fact, when we died, we laid in a box and worms ate our bodies. And the best thing we could do was accept that now. It didn't matter if we were good and bad in life. It didn't change where we ended up. It's a pretty intense thing to hear at the ripe old age of seven. I kind of wonder how my hair didn't just turn instantly gray with all of that existential weight just being thrust on top of me all at once. Like I said, my mom loved the dark, brutal, totally age-inappropriate truth bombs. I'll give you one last one here because this one also confused me for a really long time. She said, if a man talks to you even for a minute, like if he talks to you at all, it's only because he wants sex. And she also was sure to remind me that they start doing that, talking to you to elicit sex in middle school. This was confusing to me. I would imagine like, okay, if my seventh grade classmate asks me for a piece of paper, is that a thinly veiled reference to sex? What do I do here? Dude, I have no idea because she told me this in fifth grade and it all made sense to me in a weird way where of course she must be right because I'd read every single VC Andrews book many, many times at that point and they were pretty sexy and the men were doing sex in that book and so clearly my mom was right. She's a woman of the world, right? <laughs> but back to the original truth bomb, which is that life is unfair it will always be unfair. There's nothing you can do to make it more fair, right? I think I believed that for a really long time. That yes, I saw unfair, unethical stuff happening all around me, but there was nothing I could do about it because, well, life is supposed to be unfair. And if you don't accept that, then you're just, I guess, childish, right? Stupid? I don't know. You're just not supposed to try to fight it. Obviously, I have switched gears in my life to realizing, holy shit, so much unfair stuff is happening all the time. It's happening as I record this. It's happened this week when we've seen the police kill yet another black man. We, I think there was another school shooting a couple days ago. There's been tons of mass shootings this week, tons of people who aren't getting access to healthcare and vaccines. I could go on and on, but life is in fact full of unfairness, perhaps more than ever right now. And unless you've won the lottery of birthright, meaning you're rich, you're beautiful, you're white, you're thin, you're healthy, you're at least of average intelligence, if you're not all those things, if you weren't born that way, well, life is pretty unfair. And it's up to us to identify and fight the unfair things in life. A lot of things that seem unfair are really part of our capitalist system gone awry, of classism and racism and sexism, bias and discrimination, wealth disparity. I could go on and on. You know all the bad things that are causing this unfairness. It's actually been feeling really good to talk about all of the unfair ways in which capitalism affects most of us. And it doesn't feel embarrassing or childish or idealistic to call these things out and think about how they should change. When it comes to lack of competition, situations like Facebook or Walmart, we need to fight for them to be broken apart. Because as I illustrated with Walmart, these companies are so massive. They control so much. They aren't competition. They're crushing the smaller guys. It's like watching Brenda bat at an ant. You know who's going to win that fight. 
Which brings me to another unfair, monopolistic behavior, which is going to be a great preamble to my conversation with Alex about employee discounts. Like, I can't believe how well this is all tying together. (laughs) I'm proud, personally. The company store, no, not the actual company called the company store, which, go check it out. They seem to sell a lot of comfy stuff. This is not an ad for the company store. I'm actually talking about stores that were actually the only place to shop in these so-called company towns, which were towns that were built and existed to support an industry or a factory. We're talking in the early 1900s, the first half of the 20th century. Think mining towns, steel towns, that kind of thing. Often these towns were very remote, and the only shopping option was the company store. Spoiler, the company, whether it was the mine, the steel mill, whatever, ran and owned the company store, okay? Often, also, the company, the very same company, also owned the housing that the workers lived in. Sounds pretty unfair already, right? Workers had no choice but to shop at the company store since, well, There was nowhere else to shop, and you need food, you need clothes, you need other things that I'm blanking on right now. You go to the company store, and they had to rent their homes from the company because there was nowhere else to live. This meant that the company had a monopoly on both shopping and housing in these company towns. This meant that they could sell stuff at any price. And the prices were much higher than the regular stores off in other cities and towns. Housing was also more expensive. The companies were literally funneling their employees' wages back into their hands. At a certain point, it began to seem as if these workers were literally working for free or damn near close to it. Even if there were other stores in town, they weren't usually much of an option because they didn't offer credit. You see, the company stores operated via what was called scrip, it was credit, towards one's paycheck. So in theory, one could be working just to pay off what you owed the company store. And this created debt slavery, meaning workers had to continue to work for the company until their debt was cleared, which tended to mean forever pretty unfair, right? Well, the company store was killed off by the arrival of the automobile. Now workers could drive to other towns and cities to buy things at better prices. Maybe they could even move outside the company town since they could just drive to work. So they no longer needed to rent from their employer either. That said, the employee discount remains a hallmark of retail especially when we're talking about clothing and accessories. And in some ways, this continues to funnel the wages back to the employer. I'm so excited to talk about this with Alex. So let's jump right into it. (laughs) 
So, Alex, I know that the listeners of Close Horse know who you are. You're on the blog. You're up on the scene. You call in. But why don't you introduce yourself again? Um, I'm Alex. I am the owner of St. Evans, a online vintage brand. I'm based out of New York City. I have a recurring column on the Close Horse blog called The Vintage Detective, where I kind of help break down um, how you identify garments as vintage. And I had called in and done an episode where we kind of went over some of my best tips to date your vintage pieces. And now it's a column. Yes. (laughs) So I can't remember how exactly this came up, but you mentioned something to me about employee discount. And I was like, oh my God, I've been waiting to talk to someone about this for a long time because it's been on my mind. Basically how employees are really important customers to retailers thanks to employee discounts. Absolutely. So I've been a bartender mostly for the past about 10 years. I've worked in retail twice. I've worked with two different companies and they both offered what seemed at the time like a really amazing discount. And now that I have a better understanding of the industry and what margins look like and how much it actually costs these companies to make their products, I now know that that discount was not actually that good. <laughs> I know, I know. And so I was telling you that I, I did I did like a little mathematical exercise um, of some retail pricing that I know, as in like the cost that the retailer paid for an item, what the retail price was, and then what the employee would pay for it. Um, it seems mm-hmm. like based on the places that I've worked and conversations I've had with other friends, on average, the d- employee discount is about 40%. So not quite half off, but it feels like a lot. I mean, it definitely prevents you from ever paying full price for anything. And I would say it also sways you into kind of shopping exclusively with your employer. Definitely. I Both places I worked at were around, you know, half off. Um, one of the places would offer a select number of items each month that you were able to get an even bigger discount on. So it was like an additional 20% off on top of your regular discount. And then there would be certain times of year, especially around holidays, where they would offer an extension of that or you could use your discount on different categories of items that it normally wasn't eligible on. And then you were also able to use your bigger discount on in-store returns for items that you didn't actually sell in your store location. Yes. Yes. Especially like if stuff came in that was like an online return, Mm -hmm. um, you would get crazy deals on that as well. So I was doing a little math. I was fooling around with this because I was, you know, I said, yeah, once you're on the other side of it, you start to realize that it's not a very good deal. So I was thinking of a job I had where the discount was 40% and a lot of the dresses cost the retailer between eight, 10, maybe $12 on the high side. And they would retail for about $60. So automatically that is a crazy margin out of the gate. Like even if that dress cost $12 and it sold for 60. That means every time the retailer sold it, they made $48 in profit, which is pretty wild. That is a very, very high, but that's the kind of margin we're dealing with when it comes to fast fashion. And like I say, almost all major retailers are fast fashion in 2021. So I was saying, okay, if you got 40% off that $60 and now suddenly you got your dress for $36, well, 
the retailer was making anywhere from 78% margin to like a 70, 71% margin, kind of depending on whether or not that dress cost $8, $10, or $12. But when you hear that, you're like, wait a minute, that's not a good deal at all. No, I mean (laughs) – we were just talking about it before and I said basically what it comes down to is that you're – they're ripping off the customer and you're just getting ripped off slightly less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. No one's getting a good deal. And I would notice uh, – you know, so, you know, just a disclaimer here. Uh, Alex and I have worked for the same retail company. So – we both have a lot of insight based on like or common insight there, I guess, based on our experiences there. And we would have a lot of those special periods where you would get an additional discount off of sale items and off of other things that maybe you wouldn't normally get a discount on like home goods or makeup or something. And mm-hmm. those I, – I early on working retail, I noticed this trend that these special employee discount periods would always happen the day of payday. And I was like, wow, just like what a wild coincidence. Or I'd be like, that's really nice of them to like do us a solid by waiting until we get paid. And (laughs) years later, you know, working – like I'm working as a buyer. I'm on the corporate side. I'm getting this like bigger, fuller picture. I'm starting to realize employee discount isn't that hot of a deal. Um, I talked to my planner and I was like, yeah, isn't it interesting how retailers always do these special events coincidentally on payday? And she's like, Amanda, that is not – did you just hear what you said? It's not a coincidence. We planned it that way. And I was like, wait, really? And she's like, yeah, you know, like employee discount and these special employee discount events are a great lever that we can pull when we're missing our sales plan. So we might extend that period if we're not quite close to making our overall company sales plan for the month or the quarter. We might add an extra one for one weekend only as we're closing out the quarter so we can meet all of those like larger corporate earnings numbers. Right. And a lot of times they would coincide too with uh, the holidays, which when you're working at these brands, you know, you're, the targets you're supposed to hit are so much higher during those times of year. And so in order to, you know, maintain those really high targets, they would really push that the employees were spending along with the customers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they want you to buy all of your gifts for everybody in your store. And I think a big part of these brand, uh, the way that they promote these internally is like, we're your friend. We love you. We appreciate <laughs> you. Here's this great deal because you're so awesome and we care about you so much. And so they definitely frame it in a way that makes you feel like, oh, I'm getting taken care of and I'm getting this special thing. And then, you know, you'd buy something at this big discount. And then a couple months later, the thing that you bought that felt like such a great deal is on the sale rack. <laughs> and now the customer is buying it for the same or less than what you paid for it. Oh, and you're like, totally. wait a minute. Yeah. Like, uh, I didn't need to buy it, you know, feel – it's. I think a lot of it too is that you feel like it's that FOMO thing where you're like, oh, well, if I don't buy it now with my big discount – then I get less of a discount if I have to get it online, if we run out of it in the store, or if we don't have it in my size anymore. And you don't know if something's going to end up on sale or not. So you feel that push to just get it now. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a month later when it's on the sale rack, you're kind of like, oh, maybe I jumped the gun a little. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if this would ever happen to you, but this has actually happened to me 
at a lot of my jobs, even when I wasn't working in the store and I was on the corporate side, where it would be like, hey, we're so close to meeting our sales target. Could everybody just buy something? I'm trying to think if that ever happened. I don't know if it was ever that transparent. (laughs) I feel like there were definitely like in-store exercises or team building where the managers would kind of get together and be like, okay, so for opening today, we're going to do a really fun fit session where everyone needs to go through the store and pull X number of pieces and make a really cute outfit. And everyone (laughs) would be putting a bunch of stuff on and then we'd sit around in the fitting room and be like, oh my God, you look amazing. That looks so good on you. You you know, oh, should I buy it? You totally need to buy it. Uh And so then it became this, this thing where you know, you you wouldn't necessarily have thought about buying something, but then once you put it on and everyone's around you making you feel good about it, you're like, oh, maybe I should buy this. Yeah, absolutely. And so I feel like there was a, there was a lot of that sort of – something that was framed as an activity or a way to, you know, get to know the product and get to know each other and have fun at work. And it seemed like a very thinly veiled way to just convince us to buy more stuff. Totally, totally. And – the thing I we kind of bonded about this on Instagram that would always I mean, even to this day fills me with a certain level of regret is I would constantly buy clothes at work, right? Because I was like around it all the time. That was the stuff that I would never hold on to that would end up at the Buffalo Exchange a couple of months later. Uh it would just it just I had no emotional connection to it at all, yet I was consuming it all the time. And especially when I would stop working for a company, I would look at all of the like employee discount clothes that I bought and be like, ugh, I don't even like any of this stuff. I did so much of that. Wow. I Both of the companies that I worked for, I didn't necessarily shop there a ton before I started working there. And it, you know, it just... I didn't have anything against the stores. It just wasn't necessarily my personal style or like a go-to shop for me. And once I started working there, I just bought so much stuff that just wasn't stuff that I would have bought in any other situation Mm -hmm. just because you're spending so much time in the store. You're, you know, you're pitching it to customers so well and so often that you start to then convince yourself that, wow, maybe this really is the cutest dress ever. I just told 15 people that, like, <laughs> is, is it, you know? And yeah. you get so caught up in all of these different sales tactics that they start to work against you. They do. It's true. I think you just see it over and over again. And maybe it was something the first time you hung it up that you were like, eh. And then suddenly it starts to look good to you. I've definitely had that problem. Or conversely, something was never appealing to you and then it went on super sale or you scanned it and it was only like nineteen ninety nine, And then you're like, huh, should I buy this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I – yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting. I feel like there are so many pieces that you just buy it because of the price and not necessarily because you like the item itself. It just feels like, oh, this is such a good deal and if I walk away from it, you're somehow doing yourself a disservice. Like you're passing up on a really amazing opportunity or you're going to regret it later and – of the stuff I bought while I was working uh, with these brands, I, you know, have not kept and haven't thought about again ever. Yeah. They're not things that I ever would have remembered or regretted not buying if I hadn't gotten them. I mean, I I think about that too. I have so many different memories of times of being like, well, 
remember all that stuff I bought? Where is it? Like, I just, yeah. you know, and uh, I, at the, the company that we both worked for, you could go in the back and on the like computer in the manager's office, type in your employee number and pull up a list of everything you'd ever bought. And this was oh, a yeah. thing that like for some of us who'd been there for a while that it was like we would express fear of ever looking at that number to see how much money we'd given back to the company, which wasn't paying us that much money in the first place. Yep. It goes back to that idea of like the company store, uh, which, you know, was a big part of like any sort of like industrial like jobs in the in the United States and pro- probably abroad as well. But like in the early part of the 20th century where you would like get paid in script like credit and you would use that to buy all of your things at the store. So you would basically give your paycheck back to the company before you even got it. Yep. And that's what these stores are doing. And, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough how much my mind was blown when I realized that employees were actually a really important part of that company or any company meeting its sales goals year after year after year. Like basically you're getting paid, you're giving that money right back. So it's almost like you worked for free, especially when you know how low quality the stuff is that you're buying. And but what you're basically doing is just, you know, putting that money, you know, giving it to like executive bonuses and other nonsense like that. Like it's it's depressing. I mean, I also think that it allows people to feel as if their low wages are somehow justified. Like, and I mean, this is a mindset that I feel like a lot of retail workers get stuck in. And I know I did where I felt like, oh yeah, you know, I'm only making X number of dollars an hour and it's not a lot, but I get this amazing discount. And so I'm saving all this money on all this stuff. And that's just not right. We shouldn't accept getting paid like shit because we feel like we're getting all these perks that aren't even real. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've had a lot of different jobs where when you get the employee manual and they walk you through all the employee benefits at orientation, that discount is a part of it. And it's like, is it a benefit though? And so you and I were talking about how even when you're working in the store and you see stuff getting returned for very obvious quality reasons, you Mm -hmm. know the quality of what that store sells is not good and it won't last. You know that those pants rip in half if you walk too fast and like all kinds <laughs> – these are all things that I've seen. Uh, right. You still buy the stuff? Like there's such strange psychology going on. I mean I think you feel as though, oh, well, I, I'm not the same as the customer because I didn't spend full price on it. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, which like that doesn't make any sense. That's stupid. You're still <laughs> – you're still severely overpaying for the item. And it's also still bad quality. And this is something that we had talked about briefly before, but I know for a very long time, I was in this mindset of like, it's okay if it's cheap, that it doesn't last a long time or that the quality might not be great because, oh, I didn't spend a lot on it. And that's just something that collectively we all need to move away from because that's just not the right way to look at things. We you know, really shouldn't be buying things just because they're cheap ever unless it's something that you're already going to buy or we're already looking at or already needed in the first place. Because, you know, these the discounts can be useful if, you know, it's your favorite item or if it's a pair of jeans that you are going to wear a ton, you know, then like absolutely use the discount. That's a, It's a great thing to have 
but I feel like you just you overconsume so much because you feel like everything's cheap and you're getting this discount and this deal and you're buying all this unnecessary stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's cheap for a reason. Like absolutely. If the company was really losing money on selling you stuff at an employee discount, I can assure you you would not be getting that discount. Period. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's no way. Yeah, or it would be very like you can only use it one day a month for this much stuff. Like there would be rules around it. So right. another thing that you and I talked about is like the companies that require you to wear their clothes while you're working, which there are a lot of them. And even on mm-hmm. the corporate side as a buyer, there were a couple jobs where it was pretty much mandatory that when you were traveling for work, you wear that brand, which makes sense. You're like an ambassador of the brand. And in those right. situations, the companies would give you a clothing allowance. Mm-hmm. So you would get clothes for free or at a wild discount in order to you know, be clothed for all of your travel. But the stores that don't require you to wear their clothing, but it's like you know they'd like you to, that's where you will often just get like a discount. So like – you'll get that 40% off. And technically, you don't ever have to buy anything there. But, I mean, not only do you get into this weird headspace while you're working there where you want to buy everything, it's so terrible. Uh, It's kind of like people don't think you're a team player or really like working there if you're not buying clothes. Absolutely. There's so much culture around being part of the – the brand, I don't know, the aesthetic, I guess, or feeling like you fit in. And, you know, there's a lot of social stuff there too with a lot of, you know, especially in retail, it's a very uh, female industry. There's a lot of women Mm -hmm. and it can be very clicky. It can be very mean girls. It can be very, oh, you know, she doesn't dress the part or look the part. And that's something really huge too in the interview process. Oh, for for sure. Being a cultural fit, being on brand. Mm-hmm. And these are things that like, while technically when they give you a performance review, they can't score you on, but it's there. It's, it's implied and it will definitely affect your ability to be promoted, get a raise, all of that stuff. And you know, I was telling you before we recorded that I worked – for a company where I was observing some really upsetting bullying happening to an employee at the hands of their their manager. And Mm -hmm. I went to talk to my boss about it because this company didn't have an HR department. And my boss was like, well, she doesn't even wear clothes from us. So like, I mean, should she even work here anyway? And I was kind of like, wait, so it's okay to bully this person because she doesn't like, buy what, what does it have to do here? with anything? I know. And her response was like, well, if she really liked working here, she would wear the clothes. And we were working in the corporate side, by the way, in an office. It's not like we were on the, on the sales floor, like trying to get customers to buy things. And right. I just – that – I mean, obviously really upset me. <laughs> I'm still upset about it. Yeah, that's very upsetting. Yeah, yeah. But I do think that that is more common than not. I remember early when I was working retail, I was super broke and I never bought clothes from work. I just had a lot of really crazy thrift store vintage clothes. And I remember a manager saying to me like, you know, you do a really good job, but I feel like you don't actually like working here because you never wear any of our clothes. And I was like, well – I don't make enough money to buy the clothes, you know? Yeah. Like, I, and, he, and he was like, yeah, but, like, it just makes you look like to, like, leadership that you just, like, don't care. Which is just <laughs> – I'm like, you, you guys pay me, like, $8 an hour. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I – so 
retail was usually my second job. So like I said, I was a bartender and I worked in hospitality. And so that was pretty much where I made my money, how I paid my bills. But as anyone who's worked in that industry knows, it's very taxing. Um, physically, you can work really late hours. And so it can be something that's really hard to do for you know a huge portion of your week. Mm-hmm. And so I would be bartending a couple nights and then I would be doing retail along with that so that I would also, you know, have work hours during the day and my retail hours were, you know, usually less like physically taxing. Mm-hmm. And I I just I really commend anyone who's getting by on a retail salary <laughs> alone because I wouldn't have been able to do it. Like I I needed to be behind the bar to make money mm-hmm. and retail was that, you know, it was a little extra. And now looking back on it, I'm like, was it even any extra at all? Because I was spending so much money there. I wonder. Like, I felt like I was working extra, but I don't know that I was really making any money because I was just buying so much shit. Well, and I hear stories of like, I mean, I don't know anyone like this. I feel like we're all hustling to, you know, survive. But I would hear stories of people working retail solely to get that discount. And I always thought that was so wild because – Basically, then what you're doing is volunteer work. I think that's like a bougie suburban housewife thing. I don't know if that's accurate. But in my mind, it's like, you know, maybe someone who has a partner that provides most of the income so they don't necessarily need to be working. And, you know, if your kids get a little bit older and you no longer have to be spending as much time doing childcare and housemaking, then you've got like a little more free time and, you know, you want – because it, it, it is social in in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like you can make friends working retail. You get to talk to people. And so I feel like maybe that's kind of the demographic of people that's doing it for the discount because um, they're not reliant on that as their sole right, source of income. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. Is it a myth? Is it real? I'm just <laughs> always hearing about it. I mean, I will say I had a person, a friend, who had worked with me at one retail job who switched to another brand, and she was like, I hate it because 90% of the employees are working there just for the discount, and so they don't care. And I was like, right. wow, people do that because working retail is so hard. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely hard work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. I feel like I, yeah, it, people just don't really realize how much because you do, you end up doing heavy lifting and you're moving boxes around. You're on your feet for a long time, and I think actually one of the most taxing things about working in retail versus working in hospitality was that retail can be really boring, mm-hmm. and that that was really mentally draining for me. Yeah. To, you know, it's a lot of time standing around and doing nothing, not necessarily nothing, but like, you know, folding piles and doing small tasks and cleaning. And it sounds easy, but it's not easy to stand in an empty store for four hours. No. Like, no. that's not easy work at all. It's terrible. Those four hours feel like an eternity. Yeah. Or conversely, it's really busy. And like, I would leave work some days with my shoulders like so sore from just carrying clothes around and hanging clothes, hanging clothes. Oh, Running oh go-gas, yes. you know, picking stuff up Steaming. off the fitting room floors. Yes. Steaming 50 garments in a row, like your arm hurts after a while. Yeah, it sounds like it's easy, but it is so hard. The amount of stuff I was like shuffling around all the time, big boxes and just, ugh, it was, it's, it's such hard work. And I think that that is maybe why you find yourself buying dumb stuff at the end of your shift. 
I mean, I think a boredom definitely played a large part in it. Like <laughs> if I had downtime in the store and there weren't a lot of customers and you kind of are looking for something to do, you end up shopping. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You end up looking around and like poking through stuff. And then, you know, I in my store, I had a lot of people who would uh, start like little piles behind the register of things that they were going to buy when their shift mm-hmm, ended. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of times we would shop during our breaks. Yep. Which – I'm like, that's so crazy that that's your break or you should be resting. You're no longer getting paid and you would actively make the choice to stay in the store and spend all of the money you just made today working on buying a bunch of stuff, buy it, take it to your locker and then clock back in and work for the rest Uh, of the day. Like that's insane. I know I'm getting so depressed because I've lived that so many times. Yeah, uh, but it happened all the time. Totally, totally. And and like whether you're working in the store or you're working in the corporate office, like there is this incentive to buy stuff from the company. And uh, I just think like of all the stuff I've bought and I don't have anymore and how when I stopped working for all those different companies, how I never shopped there again anyway because I knew right. it wasn't a good deal. Um, it's just such a bad deal. Yeah, I uh, it's it's really crazy. We just I th- I also think a lot about um so if you had the opening shift, uh you know, a handful of people would go in several hours before the store opened, which often meant your shift started at 5 or 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. I've had that and, job. <laughs> yep, and a couple of people would be receiving shipment. Mm-hmm. And Shipment came in multiple times a week and it was boxes and boxes and boxes of new stuff. And there was always this sort of energy around it, like it was Christmas morning and you were unwrapping all this stuff and everyone, you know, because there'd be a couple people doing shipment and then several other people, you know, merchandising, cleaning the store, doing other things. And you'd all be kind of like yelling across the store at each other, like, ooh, what's that? Let me see it. And oh my God, that's so cute. And being like, oh, should I buy this? And I feel like you get caught up in that. And also I think seeing and encouraging your coworkers to buy a bunch of stuff makes you feel better about buying a bunch of stuff. Yes. Because you're like, oh, it's not just me. Like, we all do it. Or I didn't spend as much as this other person did. And it kind of helps you justify all this spending. And it feels like it's this big group thing and we're all doing it and we're all excited. And it's just, yeah, you get trapped in this this cycle. and Oh, for sure. And it would be like, oh, my God, someone returned this thing and it's normally this much, but now it's this much. Like someone needs to buy this. Like it would be like, please, someone buy this. It was – Yeah, like, oh, who's who's a size 10? Like this dress is a 10. Yeah. So like, okay, this might fit you. You should try it on because it would be so cute on you. And Then you have you to know, buy you're it. You're saving $90. Yeah. And – yeah, and it would just – another thing that I wanted to briefly mention, I just thought about um, – because we were talking about shipment. Um, oh, which is so the we, worst. So we get new stuff in, you know, multiple times a week, and the amount of garbage that it would produce. Oh, my God. When you were talking about unpacking shipment, that was immediately – my brain went to, like, mental images of – like a mountain of plastic trash bags filled with plastic wrapping and like the weird tissue and stuff. I mean, it would be so in the store I was in, it was apparel, accessory, and home goods. So the apparel would usually be 
uh, every item was in its own plastic bag, potentially with like a piece of tissue inside mm-hmm. the bag as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're thinking you're getting 30 new apparel items in a full size run. So that's, you know, 10 to 20 of each item. And they're all in their own bag. The home goods are wrapped in tissue, wrapped in bubble wrap, in a box, in another box, in another box. Yeah, like this, the home goods were insane. Yeah, it'd be like a, a matryoshka of boxes where you just <laughs> yes. be like, it just never ending. There's, I'm like, why are there seven boxes for one candle? This is insane. Always, always. And Everybody so, dreaded doing home goods, like shipment, like receiving that because it was, it was so much, much packaging. Yeah, uh-huh. So yeah, you'd go and you'd be armed with, you'd, you'd tape all of your trash bags to the table and like have this little setup. <laughs> Have oh all your, gosh, your yes. taco knives and you'd be like ready to tackle this trash. And so, like I said, you'd have, you know, a decent number of staff in the store getting the store ready for the day and everybody would be doing different tasks and there'd be a couple people doing shipment. So then when shipment was done, you would gather everybody that was working to do a trash run mm-hmm. because there was so much garbage that you needed all hands on deck and you would make multiple trips. So every single – all. 10 people or whatever that were in the store would have to go back and forth to the dumpster multiple times because there were so many bags, so many boxes. And that's one store on one day. Oh, So if you think about every store location, one, two, three, five days a week receiving this much stuff, it's just – it's – you know what you forgot to mention are those like little silica gel packets, which oh. they would just be everywhere and you would like be crawling around in your hands and knees to pick them all up because a lot of the clothes would each – each garment would come with one in that little plastic bag and they'd fall out everywhere and like yep. – the, the weird stuff that was packed with home goods was always crazy too. And it would be like the dumpster would be filled to the top in one day just from all of this packaging nonsense. And like during holiday seasons – you would be getting shipment Monday through Friday, like a hundred boxes each time. Yeah. And that's just in one store. So if one store, and this is, again, this is only one brand. So if you think about every brand in every country and every location receiving this massive amount of stuff each week. And so then it's twofold because you're creating all of this unnecessary garbage and all of this waste packaging everything because every shirt, every pair of underwear doesn't need to be in its own plastic bag. It's insane. And then it's crazy. And then on top of that, you're also feeding into – because obviously, you know, you have to bring new product in to drive sales, to bring the customer in. But then you're also doing it on the back end because now the employees are like, there's new stuff all the time and I need to shop and I need to buy more. And it just feeds into this big loop of – of just it's just too much stuff too much stuff we have to stop it is so too much stuff that you literally will move the same item three four times in a week because the new flow of shipment means you constantly have to move things around to make room for the new thing and it would be like if you took a day off you wouldn't know where everything anything was the next day you worked Oh, absolutely. You would you'd come in two days after and you'd be like, Oh, everything is moved. Whoa, what's that? What's that? What's that? It's all new. And it's just I don't know. I mean, again, I understand that these brands are just doing it because that's their their way to make money. That's mm-hmm. the way to get people into the store regularly. So, you know, we'd have regulars who would just like come in and stroll around the store multiple times a week because yeah. there's always something new to look so at. Weird. But we just we gotta we gotta stop. It's just too much stuff. We it's 
uh, we're just we're burying ourselves in this mountain of new, new, new all the time, and it's just so unnecessary. It's so wasteful. It's harmful to the people that are making this stuff. It's harmful to the environment, and we just don't need it. We don't need this stuff. We don't need it, and I. I feel like the cycle doesn't end until we all stand together and say, we don't want it anymore. Because my experience working in the industry is that nothing ever changes unless someone's about to go out of business. Then they're like, oh, right. shit, we better fix it. The only time we've ever in any of my jobs really reacted to what the customers want and took it seriously is when we were afraid that it was going to affect the business long term. And yeah. so like I – I don't see this changing until we stop feeding into it. And that's not to shame people for shopping fast fashion, right? Because we know that for a lot of people, that's the only option that is affordable, that comes in their size, that's accessible. I get it. But what we all can do is not continue to buy new stuff all the time. Yeah, of course. And I mean, there are things where, you know, I've made a really conscious effort over the past few years to be a lot more conscious about what I'm buying and where I'm spending my money. And even then at the end of the day, like I still buy, you know, Hanes tank tops from Target because I really like them and I wear the shit out of them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wear them hundreds of times until they fall to pieces. And, you know, I buy socks new because they're socks. Like, I'm not going to get my socks at the thrift store. (laughs) I've Um, tried a few times. It hasn't gone well. Yeah, you know, I mean, you can, but – Yeah. And then with that too, like, yeah, eventually your socks are going to get holes in the toes and you will have to throw them away and that's okay. Like, there's no – you know, you're not supposed to be perfect, but – at the same time, there is a lot of stuff that we could be buying secondhand. There's a lot of stuff that we could be mending and repairing um, that we just don't take the time to do. I recently did a uh, story on Instagram about laundry, which I actually got a really amazing response to. People were super into it and it made me really happy. I think that we as a society have really put convenience over everything else and Mm -hmm. we're so used to just you know balling all our shit up shoving it in the laundry machine spinning it around and we don't really think about the fact that that's just you're thrashing your stuff yeah you're putting it in this metal box and you're violently spinning (laughs) it in circles and then we're like oh no my shirt got a hole in it and it's like i mean yeah that that's pretty rough on it you know, it's, it's super hot water. You're blasting it in the dryer. Uh, yeah, the dryer. And then, and then we're upset that our stuff, you know, doesn't last or is ruined. And if you actually step back and think about what's the process here? How is this made? What's the best way that I can care for this specific garment? You start to realize that not all clothes are created equally. They're, they shouldn't all be treated the same way. Different fabrics require different washing methods, different drying methods. And if you actually step back and take the time to kind of educate yourself and have a better understanding on how you should be taking care of stuff, then all of your stuff lasts longer. And that includes fast fashion mm-hmm. because a lot of fast fashion is made out of, you know, these synthetic materials that we've, you know, there's a stigma that, oh, polyester, it sucks, it's garbage, whatever. But it's also really, really strong. It's super durable. Mm-hmm. So I have these, you know, I'll source polyester blouses from the 70s and they look brand new. The fabric's in amazing condition. The colors are super vibrant. And of course, I understand that, you know, for some people that doesn't feel the best to wear, it might not be your favorite fabric. 
but it is made to last. So there isn't really a reason that we should be, you know, wearing something once and then being like, oh, it tore a little at the seam and I'm going to throw it away now. You can A, avoid it tearing in the first place or at least put that off a little bit by taking better care of it. And then you can also fix it. It's you know, like minor things are pretty easy to do on your own. You can learn how to do it. And if you don't have time or if you aren't capable of doing it yourself, you know, you probably have friends and family who can do it. I have a friend who will give stuff to her mom every time she goes home to visit to mend. And um, yeah, I think we just need to really get in the mindset of taking better care of our stuff, regardless of whether it's fancy or cheap. Well, yeah. And I think it's like you have to remember, or at least I guess appreciate and honor all of the energy and materials, resources, and time that go into creating those garments in the first place. Like even just talking about like, okay, you know, we know by now, if you've listened to the pod long enough about making the fabric and sewing it and inspecting it and shipping it and packing it, all that stuff. But even just like something we talked about today, let's also not forget about all the packaging that was involved in sending it over here and then someone here unpackaging it all and hanging it up and steaming it and putting it away, Mm -hmm. folding it and folding it and folding it and folding it. These are like, we can't squander all of that time and energy and resources by being over stuff as fast as we've been. Yeah. I mean, it's true. If you think about that process from the farmer on the field growing the cotton to make the shirt. And then it spends, you know, there's hours and hours of labor spent to get it from the field to the textile mill, to the factory, to getting the buttons and the finishes put on, getting it shipped, having it in the store, making its way to you for then what you wear it once and you throw it away. Like, you know, we've just become so detached from the process, Mm -hmm, I think, that mm -hmm. we don't think about any of that anymore. And if you really step back to consider these things, I mean, you should feel a little bit guilty about just dumping something, you know, after barely using it. Because like, we really shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, yeah, we have to change our mindset. And like, you know, I look back and the majority of my fast fashion shopping, my overconsumption, my cycling things in and out really fast – came from the old employee discount. (laughs) Yeah. That was where it would stem for me. And when I stopped having an employee discount, I didn't shop like that anymore. Absolutely. And I think, well, we're talking about this for two reasons. One is to illuminate all of you who've never been aware of the employee discount of how it plays out and how kind of insidious it can be as an employee. But also for all of you who do work retail, who do get that discount to see for a moment, wait a minute, Maybe I need to ch- cool it with using my discount. And yeah, I mean, and I get it. It's hard. Like, it's so hard. Uh, you know, yeah, spending all the time in the store. You're there all the time. You're there every day. You're looking at this stuff. You're talking to people about the stuff. It's it's not easy. And I don't expect anyone to be like, you're right. I'm done using my discount today. Um, that's just not realistic. But yeah, I think it really is important to think about the psychology behind you know, the culture at work and the pressure you feel from your coworkers, from management. And again, that the wording that your company uses to make you feel like they're your friend and they're hooking you up 
and you know it you're not getting hooked up <laughs> you are not getting hooked it's, up i think yeah, that, like, that is like the sum sum they don't of the care whole about thing. you they, they really don't. don't they don't and like you know it's not to say that no one down the line cares about you like you know i had really amazing managers and i know that my managers cared about me as a person my coworkers cared about me but the company the bottom line they don't give a shit they don't care they about they do not they if do. you're happy if you you know like you're getting a good deal like they don't care about any of that they just want you to give them back the money that they just paid you to work in their store. Exactly. And when you think about it that way, it's so ugly. It's it's like capitalism at its best, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> and it's, and, yeah. Because it tricks you. You, you. you get your paycheck, you then give your paycheck back, and then you walk out of the store like happy and excited. Like, oh my God, I just got this cute new dress and I'm going to wear it. I'm going to look so great. And it's like, how fucked up is that? That they're tricking you into giving your money back and then you feel good about it? Yeah. Like, that's crazy. That's not cool. Yeah. Like, for example, going back to the idea of this $60 dress that maybe cost $8 or $10, by the time you get your discount, you're still giving them $26 or $28 back on yeah. that dress. How many hours of work is that for you? And when you start to see it that way, the deal is even less of a deal. And when yeah. I think – like. The idea of these retailers like caring about you, being your friend, you know, wanting to hook you up. You know, I mentioned the job I had where you could go back in the manager's office and pull up a list of everything you'd ever bought. That wasn't because the company was like, hey, we just want to make sure it's easy for you to return things or keep track of your spending. No, it was because if you showed up in something that no one remembered ringing you up for, they could go look in the back and see if you stole it. Because oh, I mean, rather than being your buddy – that company does not trust you. <laughs> not at all because no matter how, you know, in the store culture you were and you could be wearing all of the stuff head to toe every day, you could be the, f- the favorite employee of the store, the shining star. And no matter what, when you left at the end of the day, when your shift was over, you absolutely had to go get another manager to look through your bag and make sure mm-hmm. you weren't taking anything. Mm-hmm. And that includes management. Right. I was I worked in management towards like the tail end of me being there and even when you're, you know, the in charge of the store, you still had to go get another manager to check your bag mm-hmm. to make sure that you weren't taking stuff and they're paying you so little and they're still scrutinizing you always. Well, and I think that's a good call out to you. Like this is just opening up all these memories for me and I would remember I would get off work, right? Like I would have clocked out and I needed before I could leave leave my job, I needed to have my bag searched. And at a certain point before that, we were even having to like pull out our pockets and roll up our cuffs and stuff. Oh my God. And uh, like in the middle of the store in front of employees, I mean, in in front of, well, in front of employees and customers too. Mm -hmm. And I would be waiting there 10, 15, 20 minutes because it was busy and the manager couldn't come and check me. And if I left without getting that done, I would be fired. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm giving even more of my time to this retailer for free. And then, you know, while you're, you have that 10 minutes, right, where you're waiting for a manager to check your bag, you know what you might do to kill time in that 10 minutes? Totally buy something at shop. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, we've all been there. Yeah. You're standing in the store and you've got nothing to do and you're just waiting and you're like next to this rack and you're like, oh, this is kind of cute. And you're like, oh, it's $60. Okay. So if I have my discount and you're like doing this math and then you end up buying something before you even leave Uh. again. It's just – it's an endless cycle. It's so bad. It's so bad. And I think, 
you know, when people are like, I don't know, like, for example, I posted last week about Nike, Nike not paying any taxes. And overnight, I got weird, like, MAGA people trolls commenting (laughs) of like, well, companies are going to do what they want to do. Ask your president to do better so that they don't do these things. I'm like, you know, I hate this idea that it's okay and to be expected that big companies like retailers, whatever, behave unethically and exploit people. Like, like, well, of course they're going to do that. That's just what they do. Why do we think that's okay? Why is that the expectation? Like, I think, I mean, and this could end up being like a generational thing. I've been thinking about that a lot too, because I feel like millennials especially and, you know, Gen Z now are really demanding a higher level of accountability from companies and like expecting better. Whereas like, Mm -hmm. you know, boomers might be like, well, that's just how business is. Uh, Like it or leave it, you know, that kind of thing. Right. (laughs) And I, I think it's time for us to redefine like, it's not okay for retailers to be taking advantage of people like this, uh, to be exploiting their labor to meet their sales goal. I mean, they're already underpaying these people as it is. Like in in my retail store where I worked for years, only about 10% of the employees were actually full-time and got benefits. And everybody else, like when I would write the store schedule, I'd have to be like, okay, well, that person worked more than 30 hours, two weeks in a row. So now this week, I'm only going to give them 10 because otherwise they're going to qualify for benefits. Yep. Like this is the real, this is really what happens. Oh yeah. I mean, stores will schedule people intentionally. So you always fall one hour under full time (laughs) just to avoid, you know, like, oh, well, if we give you that one extra hour. Or I remember being sat down for like a full store meeting where they gave us a talking to about making sure that everyone was clocking in and out correctly. Because if you waited a minute after your shift ended to clock out, then you might end up getting overtime by accident. Oh and so gosh, they were like, yes. make sure, it, you know, we want you to be here on time, but if you get here early, you have to just sit in the break room and you have to watch the clock and you can't clock in until exactly when your shift starts at eight o'clock on the minute. You can't clock in at 7.58 because then if you clock out when your shift ends, those two minutes could put you over. Yeah. And so it was like this whole meeting of being like, make sure that you're, you know, and, it, and then it falls on us to prevent our company from accidentally needing to pay us more, which is like, Oh my God. I, I remember our store manager would every week print out all the clock in and clock out information and then highlight anyone who had been clocking out late, clocking in early and make us have talking to's with these people. And I was just like, it's two minutes. But once again, this is the environment we're working in, which is Mm -hmm. also an environment that's like, hey, best friend, buddy, I know I told you that you can't clock in until exactly 7 a.m. And maybe I even wrote you up about that. But hey, I just wanted to let you know that this week only I'm offering you a super hot extra deal. (laughs) Right. And also, if you're late, you're going to be in trouble. So make sure that you're clocking in at exactly seven and you have a one minute window to not fuck it up. Yeah, basically we're not (laughs) really friends at all, but like I'm just going to pretend anytime I want your money back. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like that's impossible. You you can't be 
and a minute early, but then you can't be a minute late either. And then same clocking out. Like you need to work your full shift and you can't leave early because then you're screwing over your coworkers and letting uh, them do your work for I know, you. But I know. then if you clock out late, then you're violating the the punch clock rules. Mm-hmm, and it's just mm-hmm. like what, what – that's, that's impossible. What are you supposed to do? I remember having to have a talking to with someone because they were clocking in and then using the bathroom. Oh, my God. And I had to be like, you're going to have to use the bathroom before you clock in. And they were like, why? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, because a company might have to pay you three cents to pee. during the time yeah. you're sitting on the toilet. <laughs> yeah. And that is just unacceptable. Yeah. You, like, God forbid they give you three cents to sit down for one minute. <laughs> I that know. is just – I know. Oof. I mean, what a you wild know? time. Like, I think back – like, I, I mean, who knows what my future is going to be, like – since my career has been kind of ended by the pandemic and I wonder about going back to work retail. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready to go back into a situation in which I have to ask to use the bathroom and yeah. not use the bathroom too often because I'll get in trouble for that. Like that is what it is to work retail and I'm sure a lot of food service as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, hospitality is also just a whole different ball game right now because of the pandemic. Sure. Um, I've gone back to bartending one day a week now, and I've been at this bar for almost three years now, and it is just a completely different job than it was uh, a year ago, and it's it's been interesting. But um, yeah, the thing the thing with hospitality though is, and of course this isn't you know for all jobs everywhere, but I do, I do I did and still do make more money doing that than I did doing oh, retail. For sure. So like, yeah, you know, I put up with a lot of shit at bars and people are drunk and they're assholes and someone puked on the bar and whatever. But I'd also go home with like a decent amount of money and I'd feel like, okay, like I I worked really hard and I, you know, I made my money and now I can pay my bills and, you know, have a little bit left over. Whereas at retail, you're going in and you're dealing with a lot of the same stuff just on a different level. Like people are hopefully sober. I don't know. Potentially you would have not, a lot of drunk but... people. For a while, the store I worked in on Saturday, like Friday and Saturday nights would be open until 10 p.m. Oh, and no. eventually we stopped doing that primarily because like on a Saturday night, anyone who would come in after nine was just like wasted. shit-faced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And would be like throwing up in the fitting rooms, making oh, a huge no. mess. Someone passed out in a fitting room trying on jeans and it was just it was just like more more work than it was worth you know yeah i mean you end up dealing with all kinds of stuff like i've you know, cleaned out a fitting room with uh, period-stained uh, swimwear left behind. Oh, yep, yep. I one time – oh, God, this is awful. I had this little girl in the store. I worked in a store that was adults on one side and kids on the other. Mm-hmm. And they would stick me on the kids' side t- sometimes, which was fine. This little girl is like begging her mom to use the bathroom. She's like, mom, I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. Whatever. She's maybe like eight or nine and – She's like really desperate and her mom is like ignoring her. She's like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. One minute, one minute. She's like looking at skirts or something. And finally I go over and I'm like, hey, like if you need the bathroom, let me show you where it is. Girl just starts bawling and I'm like, whoa, what's going on? She peed herself. Like she peed on the floor. She was crying and she was so upset and I felt so bad. You know, I felt awful for her, but then also like I had to clean pee off the floor at my retail job where I was making like barely over $10 an hour. I had to sign – you know, I had to fill out forms because it was uh, like human waste. 
So you have to like fill out paperwork. You have to put everything you use to clean into a special bag and then immediately go dispose of it in the back. And it's like this whole thing. And like, what, 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 for $10 an hour? That's insane. Yeah, that is wild. I feel like at least once a year, there would be a situation in which someone pooped in the fitting room in a pile of clothes and then wiped their butt with other clothes. (laughs) (laughs) I I know I shouldn't laugh, but oh my God. I. I've never had a poopy problem working retail, thank God. Period blood and pee were about the uh, extent of my experiences with uh, bodily functions. But, um, I mean, I fully believe that. I, you know, I have had a poopy bathroom situation at a bar job. Oh, man. Um, uh. someone, someone shit, like, six inches in front of the toilet. Okay, this is the thing that happens more often than you think because I Just feel like – on the floor. I hear this story a lot and I'm like, how, how? I, I don't know. I have a lot of questions. You, yeah. You were so close. You were all, you made it. it. You, like, you, you, you could have gone to the bathroom. There. Yeah. yeah. You were there. The toilet's right there. Your like, pants you, were down. Yeah. You, you I, almost got it, buddy. You're so close. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say like the retail store that I worked in, which is pretty common, I would say, situation for clothing stores is that there wasn't a public bathroom. And so that would give customers like sort of license to just poop and pee wherever in the store. And so we would, we also would have trouble with people going like deep into the sales section and peeing. Oh my God. That's (laughs) oof. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a bar problem. Uh, I've yelled at a lot of people that just feel like they can just you know, oh, the line in the bathroom's long, so I'm just going to pee here on the floor oh in the bar. Oh, my God, stop. I, it's happened so many times where I've, I've like, locked eyes with a guy who had his dick out. And I'm uh. like, what? Why? You can't do that. That is not acceptable in any world. I don't care if the bathroom line is long. You don't pee on the floor. Uh. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and you're doing all this, and you're really not making a lot of money. That but is crazy. you get a sick discount, so it's all worth it, uh, right? Yeah. Like you get 40% off, so it's totally worth picking poop up off the floor. For $8 an hour or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. I mean, $8, but then you're going to spend $15 on that discounted top that you're going to buy at the end of your shift. To make yourself feel better about <laughs> yes, picking you're up actually, poop. You're giving the company $7 to pick up poop. <laughs> when you like, say it that way, that's what like, it comes really, down to. It really like it's like a gut punch, you know. It's, it's like insane. Oh my God, you're right. But I mean, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and I look back on my years working retail and I how much just stupid shit I would buy. And I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I was working for free so many days. Yep. And it's not like I ever was like spending my whole paycheck there. But when I think about the amount of money that I would spend versus how much that really cost them, like the truth is if they wanted to hook you up, give you a hot deal, really cared about you, if they were your buddy, you would get that stuff for cost. So the company wouldn't lose money and then you would have this great relationship and then you would be wearing stuff and people would buy it, right? That's why clothing allowances exist. Absolutely. Instead, they're saying like this is another money-making opportunity for us. And I I just have to say this again as the person who's worked on the corporate side and has seen the days of those special like discount periods turned on. The immediate jump in sales was wild and very noticeable and proved the intent behind it. I'm I'm so sure. It's it's also interesting that you know retail, especially fashion retail, um, you know designer brands, nonwithstanding. But it's really seen and it's looked down on. It's mm-hmm. seen as 
you know, oh, it's okay if it's minimum wage. These people are unskilled Uh. and it's easy and whatever, whatever. This whole list of, you know, reasons why it's okay to pay people, you know, $10 an hour or less to work retail jobs. And it's interesting because it is, like we mentioned before, it's a lot of women. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's it's a lot of women. It's a lot of – it's women of all ages too. I think it's seen as being like a young thing. Like, oh, it's just teenagers working in these stores. And it's really not. I've worked with a lot of women who were middle-aged, older, a lot of parents. You know, I've worked with a lot of moms who had multiple kids who needed the income to help take care of their families. And it's just interesting that as a society, we've kind of made it so that it's okay that you don't really make any money doing this job because it's somehow not important, even though Mm -hmm. every single person wears and buys clothes. Yeah. And it's everybody hard work and it's, there is skill involved in it. You know, ask, ask me about folding. You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, even, or like when someone comes in and asks you for something or like I, it was actually uh, – I had a conversation recently with, with somebody who I was um, – I'm releasing a collection soon that is a lot of gingham pieces. And someone was like, what's gingham? I'm like, oh. Yeah. And so I explained, you know, I'm like, oh, it's like a checkered print. You, st- uh, you would associate it with like a picnic. And I described it and then I pulled up a photo on my phone and they were like, oh, okay. And, you know, they were like, I didn't really know the difference between like gingham and checkered and plaid and tartan and – you know, not saying that every single person in retail knows all of these distinctions, but there there is a lot of knowledge that you do need to know on a base level just to sell clothes or to help people find mm-hmm. things. And Definitely. yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's very interesting that it's a, it's become this really look down upon job when it's so essential to everyone. And it's something that Everyone participates in, everyone buys clothes, everyone goes into stores, whether you're getting it online or in person. Because even if you're buying it online and you think, oh, like there's, you know, I'm not interacting with a person, that's not true. I know, I know. There's so much work involved. And I hate that retail workers, food service workers, a lot of hospitality workers, to be honest, are treated as like invisible or worthy of disdain or subhuman. And yeah, like it's – and again, it's okay that you don't make a lot of money because you don't deserve a lot of money for some reason, which why? I, I know. I know. And even going back to this idea of like teenagers working in stores, the store I worked in, you had to be 18 to work there in the first right. place. And we would almost never hire people who were even 18 or 19 because we felt that there would be a maturity mm-hmm. issue. So. We had adults working in there. There were plenty of people in their mid-20s, late-20s, 30s, you name it, working in that store every day to get by. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now I'm all riled <laughs> up. <laughs> there's there's a – yeah, there's a lot to be reckoned with. And I think that, like you said before, you know, it comes down to – it comes down to us because at the end of the day, these companies mm-hmm. don't care about us. They don't care about the customers. They don't care about the employees. They just want to make money. And so we got to get together. We got to talk about this. We have to make it a discussion and we have to hit them where it hurts. We have to say, you know, okay, I'm going to take my money elsewhere. I don't want to give it to you. I don't want to support you. I'm not going to, 
you know, interact with your brand online. I'm not going to recommend you to my friends. Like all of that goes away if you continue treating people like garbage, if you continue paying people wages that nobody could live on, if you continue, you know, exploiting people for your production. Yeah, I agree. Cut them off and tell them why. And don't like, don't follow them on Instagram. Yeah. You know, unsubscribe to their emails. Seriously, they look at those metrics and they they need to figure out what's going on. I mean, I, you know, I'm very cynical. Uh, I'm also realistic and I feel that a lot of these brands are never going to change, period. Right. Well, then why would we keep supporting them? Yeah, I mean, and the thing is too is that obviously, you know, it's not that easy. It's, it, you know, we're sitting over here being like, oh, don't do this, do that, whatever. And it's not that simple. It does take work. But I think mm-hmm. that – if you start to put the work in, it compounds and it gets easier over time. So, you know, you you start off with the little things. Like you said, unsubscribing from brand emails, unfollowing brands on social media. Um, maybe when you're out walking, you don't go into the store at all. You know, you walk mm-hmm. past it instead of stopping in to browse. Like you do these little things and then over time you'll realize you don't notice that you don't, you're not getting those emails anymore. You're not even thinking about the brand because you're not seeing it on your feed anymore. And, you know, you collectively just – you move away from it and it stops being as much work. Yeah. It, you know, the, the consciousness there, it kind of fades away. You don't really need to put as much effort into it anymore. You're just no longer supporting these brands and it just becomes part of your life and you're not thinking about it anymore. And I think that something that's been really helpful for me is really, I guess, replacing a lot of these – problematic brands or problematic influencers or, you know, different emails that I was getting that were really tempting and kind of leading me towards buying things that I didn't need and instead replacing them with people who are advocating for better brand practices, people, you know, pages like Clothes Horse that are talking about sustainability and connecting you to the network of people who are like-minded. When you see more of that and it's more in your field of vision, it helps A, serve as a reminder so that you're thinking more about this stuff and it's kind of on the forefront. And it also helps you find your replacements. So like if you, you know, like there, you do need to buy stuff. No one's not buying anything at all. But by interacting with people who are like-minded and people who care about this stuff, those are the people that are going to be like, hey, here's a really amazing small business that I like to support that has great practices and, you know, treats their employees really well. And by kind of building these circles around you, it, again, it alleviates a lot of that work and it doesn't feel like effort anymore. You're now just being brought this stuff and it just appears in front of you and you're all of a sudden like, oh my God, I have all these amazing (laughs) options And you don't feel like you have to dig as much. I agree. I love that. I mean, it really is about surrounding yourself with the right community. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for dropping by. This was so fun to talk about employee discount, which sounds like it's so (laughs) boring, but I was like, was and am really excited about this conversation. Yeah, I'm really (laughs) glad we got to talk about this. I feel like it's – well, you you had mentioned before that you were waiting for someone to bring it up talking about, you know, other retail experiences and other people who'd worked in the industry and no one had really mentioned it before. And it's interesting because it really is such a huge factor in working in retail. So it's interesting that Mm -hmm. uh, you hadn't talked about it before. I know. And it makes me wonder if it's because for those of us who've worked a lot of retail, you feel 
kind of ashamed of all the stuff you bought. Yeah. You know, like I, I've had to process that. Guilt's not the way forward, you know, but it, I, I, I think there is a little bit of guilt required to help you get to a better place, you know, like, <laughs> I like that attitude. yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's not fun. And I think that a lot of times guilt stops people from growth because you you hit that wall where you're like, I f- this makes me feel bad and I don't want to feel bad. So I'm going to not think about it or I'm going to ignore it and it'll go away and I don't have to think about it. And instead, you really have to face it and be like, why do I feel guilty? Why does this make me feel bad? And once you break that down and you understand that, A, it's okay. Like we all fuck up. We all do things that you know we maybe wish we hadn't done. And B, a lot of it's also not your fault. You know, like that guilt needs to be shared with the brands that you worked for, with the company dynamics, with the people you were working with who helped put you in that position to make bad choices. It's not something that you did in a vacuum, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's a really good call out. And just recognizing, seeing the pattern, understanding why you make the choices you make, that is step one of making better decisions in the future. Yeah, it's it's totally okay. Like we all have things that we feel guilty about and no one's perfect. And the most important thing is not what you did, but what you're doing now and the steps you're making to be better and, you know, learn about these things and yeah, make better choices in the future. And you just got to process the guilt. You got to face it and then you just got to move past it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. I think – or at least I like to hope that we're all doing a lot of that in the past year as we've had a lot more time to kind of reflect on what our lives were like before and what they can be going forward. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alex, for taking the time to talk to me. I finally got to have my conversation about employee discount and it did not disappoint. Alex is yet another incredible person that I never would have met without Close Horse. And now I can't imagine not knowing her. I'm hoping Alex will be back soon. We have tentative plans to talk about unions, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you'll find Alex on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans and at where St. Evans dot com. And don't worry, I'll share that in the show notes. And of course, you'll also find her in her recurring column at closeforce.world vintage detective. It's time to wrap this episode up, but I just want to say again, don't be afraid or embarrassed to name what you see as unfair, whether it's something that affects you or others. I keep thinking of the story I told Alex about seeing a coworker being bullied by her manager and really the rest of her team because they were following the manager's example. The manager was practically encouraging it. Not practically, she was. Saying something about that to my boss and then sort of being told that I was just a sensitive baby for caring. Well, you know what? That shit was unfair. And I'm glad that I called it out. I wish I could have done something more about it. I still think about that and a whole lot of other unfair, wrong, unethical stuff I've seen in my career in the fashion industry. And I realize that I can never accept anything unfair ever again. To say that life is just unfair and you must accept it because it's futile to change it. It's almost lazy. It's like saying like, no, I'm just going to mind my own business 
We can't mind our own business anymore, and we can't be okay or complacent or ignore unfairness because, quote, that's how it's supposed to be, because it's not supposed to be that way. Unfair is a nice rebrand for injustice, cruelty, abuse, exploitation, stepping up to support others, to advocate with and for them, calling out injustice, standing in solidarity when someone needs that backup, that support, that protection. That's a key component of a life well-lived. And I know, for one, that I want to do that whenever it's needed. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. As I always say, if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Of course, right? Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. Don't forget I'm doing that Instagram Live this Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern with Sammy of Dylan Page. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. And you should go listen to the department. You know, I accidentally uploaded it to the Close Horse feed today. So you may have already heard it. <laughs> I took it back off. But hey, maybe this is a sign that you should listen to the department. We're talking about online dating right now. It's really interesting. Uh, Kim just explained Ashley Madison this week. And it's a wild story. Talk about some unfairness there. <laughs> Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. Bye.